be starting, uh, or we're going to be finishing, actually. This will be our fourth and final uh, message on our series of Second Peter, or you could look at it as the 11th and final message on our study through First and Second Peter. This chapter contains Peter's final recorded words that we have in the Bible. Um, we read a couple weeks ago that Peter was aware that his time on earth was short. He knew that the end was near, and so he recognized that these might be the last words that he gets to say to these believers. So he begins this chapter by readdressing them. It's, it's almost like he's starting the letter over again, and he calls them dear friends or beloved. And the Greek word that, that is uh, the, the root of the Greek word used here is, is agape, which most of us recognize as being God love or Christian love. He has a deep love for these believers, and he's passionate about them staying strong even after he's gone. Uh, so starting with Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is my second letter to you, dear friends or beloved. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what the Lord and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. It reminds me kind of like a, a parent that is sending their kid to a new school and they're worried about uh, whether the things that they've taught them will stick with them. If, if they're going to be under pressure from other kids to, to, to believe other things and they aren't going to be there to help them, to encourage them. And Peter says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Last week, um, in case you weren't here, we talked about how important it is to pay close attention to God's word that was recorded through the prophets in the Bible. We read in, uh, from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it said, you must pay close attention to what they wrote. Their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. They're like a lamp shining in a dark place. It's dangerous to walk around in a dark place without a light, right? Uh, this is especially true if you have kids that may have left random Legos out in the middle of the walkway. Some of you have experienced this. It's important to have light, and knowing the truth can be a form of light. When I was a kid, I used to walk around, not all the time, but, but there was times that I would try and walk through the house with my eyes closed and just like, using my, my memory uh, to try and figure out, you know, instinctively where to turn to see if I can make it through without looking. And because I knew the house so well, I, I could do it fairly well. I could, I could walk around and not run into, any, into anything. My familiarity with my house was like my light. Now, after being away from my parents' house for a while, not living there, I would probably run into a wall. My, my sense of exactly what path to take is not as clear in my mind. But back then, I was reminded daily of the path. It was in the forefront of my memory of where to walk. Your knowledge of God's word that's stored in our heart and kept in the forefront of our mind can be a light to our life. It can be something that guides us. Scripture is powerful to protect us and guide us, and that's why Peter quoted it several times throughout his writings. He, he wanted to stimulate 
um, wholesome thinking, refresh our memories so that now that he's no longer with us, now that he's gone, we don't make a wrong, wrong turn and run into a wall. Peter emphasized the scriptures because there's authority in them. It's because they're reliable. Um, the scriptures are not just helpful sayings. They're not just, um, just general wisdom, but they're the very words of God the creator of the universe. The Bible is the benchmark for all that we believe. All of our theology is based on scripture. Peter in verse two refers to the words of the prophets, but he's referring to more, to more than what we would just call the books of the prophets. I don't know if you are familiar with how, how the Old Testament is divided up, but um, when the Old Testament is referred to in the New Testament, it's called the, there's the law, there's the prophets, and then they had a section called the writings or the Psalms. And it consists of the same books that we have today, but um, they weren't necessarily categorized the same way. So for example, some of the books that we would categorize as the prophets were actually categorized to them in the, as being Psalms or writings. And much of the books that we would call the books of history, they would actually call books of the prophets. And so I say all that just to say that it seems possible to me that when he's talking about paying attention to the words of the prophets, he's not specifically calling out one part of the Old Testament, but he's talking about the words that were written in scriptures as a whole. And, and we can kind of see that, that idea because when we look through his writings, he didn't just quote from what they would have called the prophets, but he also quoted from things that would have been included in the books of the law and in the books of the writing or the Psalms. So anyway, um, like I said, all that is to say that Peter considered all of Scripture to be important, both in proof of who the Messiah is and also for instruction for life. In this letter, um, he even goes further, which is kind of interesting. He's validating what is to become the New Testament. And he talks about uh, the authority of the words of the apostle, how they are commands of Jesus spoken through them. And later we'll see that he references to the writings of Paul. And so um, we see this authority of scripture, both old and new, referenced in the book of, in this book, or this chapter in Second Peter. Moving ahead to verse three, and we kind of get into the, the meat of, of what Peter wants to tell us. He says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. Uh, have you ever been mocked because of your faith in Christ? Uh, have you ever felt like you were treated differently because someone thought you were not quite right in the head because you chose to live a godly life? It just it didn't make sense to them and they thought you were strange. Even if you haven't experienced that sort of mocking, um, personally, specifically to you, um, when we look across culture, we can see that Christians as a whole are mocked in this world. We see it through sitcoms and movies and, and how personalities in the media view Christians or how they portray Christians and how they seem to um, maybe uh, scoff at us because our views, our beliefs that come from the Bible, um, they, they clash with their desires with how they want to live and they feel like it's, a, it's an infringement upon their freedoms. He introduces this point here saying, most importantly, 
some translations will say, first of all, or above all. This was a point that Peter wants to drive home, and he made quite a few references to this point. If we look back through, uh, through the first two, through the two books that he has in the Bible, first and second Peter, if we look back in first Peter chapter three, verse nine, he says, um, he's, he talks about not retaliating with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. In 1 Peter 4, he says that your former friends who are surprised that you don't want to continue in sin with them, they will slander you. Then again, jumping to verse 14, he says that if you are insulted because you bear the name of Jesus Christ, that you will be blessed. Then jumping into uh, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, because of false teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. And lastly, in verse 12, still talking about false teachers, he says that they scoff at the things they do not understand. This has been kind of a theme that we find. There's a few different themes that we find repeated through uh, Peter's writings, but this is a major theme. And uh, there's a reason why it is important. There's a reason why he calls it um, most important. And the reason for that is because we need to be ready for it. It's going to happen. He says there will be scoffers. We need to be ready because if we're not ready, it can make us question our faith. People generally, naturally, we want to fit in with the people around us. We want to be accepted. And so when our ideas are scoffed, when we're made to look like an outsider, our natural desire is to want to shift. We want to fit in. So dealing with the pressures of our beliefs being mocked can make life hard. And if you're not grounded, if you're not completely convinced of and committed to Jesus and the hope that we have in him, eventually you're going to feel like it's just not worth it. you feel like, why am I doing this? And you may turn away. In verse 21, it, uh, sorry, this is from, uh, from 2 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. We read this um, last week. It said that it would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. There are some, because of mocking, that will be convinced to turn. And I believe this is pulling on Peter's heart. He's, he's calling them my beloved. He's calling them my dear friends. Most importantly, be ready, holding on to the words of the prophets, the words of Scripture, hold on to them so that you can face the scoffing, so that you can face the mocking that you will endure in life. Uh, one time I, I, actually, I don't know if this was a specific crime show that I watched or if it's just a general thought that I have from, from shows that I've seen or whatever, but I have this picture in my head of, uh, of a person who is in the wrong place at the wrong time and he's arrested for committing a crime. And, uh, and for some reason, whether he's under the influence of, of some drugs or something, he can't remember exactly what happened. But he's in this interrogation room. The detectives believe him to be guilty. And, and so he's sitting there not remembering. And the detectives interrogating him hurl accusations at him in a rapid pace. They say, we have video of you entering the building. Your prints are on the weapon. Do you, do you really expect, expect us to believe that you weren't there, that you didn't do this? We know you didn't like him. We have witnesses of you arguing with him. 
You know you're guilty. Just admit it. Admit it. We already know you did it. Stop wasting our time. You went to the building with that weapon. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? This is the picture I see in my mind. And, and they're berated. And eventually they're like, I, I did it. I must have done it. You know, they confess to this thing because it seems so likely to be true. So they confess to something they didn't do. Now, this is obviously more intense than something we would face in real life. But the idea here is that if he had known the truth, if he knew the truth, there's no way he would confess to something they didn't do, that he would take on the punishment for something he didn't do because he knew that he knew that he didn't do it. So today we experience the enemy ta- attacking us in a little bit different way. It seems more subtle. It seems like it's, it's a long process of wearing us down, looking for those weak spots of where our faith isn't as sure Those weak spots are places where we don't know the truth, or if we do know the truth, it's not founded on Scripture. It's it's founded on on something we heard somebody say, uh, we believed it to be true, but it's not solid in our lives. And so we need our beliefs to be grounded on the unshakable Word of God. Um, Psalms 119 gives us a picture of somebody who has that kind of unshakable faith in the word of God and he won't let evil people change his mind. This is in Psalms 119. It says, I hate those with divided loyalties, but I love your instructions. You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Get out of my life, you evil minded people, for I intend to obey the commands of my God. Lord, sustain me as you promised that I may live, do not let my hope be crushed, sustain me, and I will be rescued. Then I will meditate continually on your decrees, but you have rejected all who have strayed from your decrees. They are only fooling themselves. How can we stand against scoffers if we don't know what is truth? The psalmist said, I love this, get out of my life, you evil-minded people. I intend to obey the commands of my God. You cannot recognize who the evil-minded people are without having God's commands in your heart and mind to compare them to. It is the law of God that shines a light that reveals what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. We have to know and we have to remember what the scriptures say. Um, verse 114 that we read there said, the word is our source of hope. And it says in 118 that those who reject it are only fooling themselves. Last week we talked about false teachers and, um, and I mentioned the, a definition of heresy, which of course is what false teachers are teaching. And one of the definitions was that it's a self-chosen opinion. These scoffers that mock the word of God, that mock our faith, what are they relying on? What is the, what is the foundation for what they're, what they're using to, to say that we're wrong, that, that the Bible is incorrect? They may speak confidently. They may be louder. They may have more people who agree with them. But oftentimes that's it. <laughs> that's where it ends. It's just a self-chosen opinion. They're only fooling themselves and their faith is not grounded on anything more than that. 
And if we don't have our faith grounded on something more than that, we'll be influenced by the crowd. We'll be influenced by culture. We'll be influenced by what seems to be right or accepted by the consensus of the people. You know, um, and I don't know if this is really true. There's people have always said that there was a time when, when everybody believed that the earth was flat. Um, but if indeed there was a time where everybody on earth believed that the earth was flat, that did not make it true. Didn't matter if 100% of the people on the earth believed that the earth was flat, it still wasn't flat. Truth is not a democracy. It's not based on popular vote. Scoffers may come, they may come in numbers, um, but we have to have our footing on something that's more unshakable than just popular opinion. We have to have it based on the word of God. We're going to read again um, verse 3 as it leads into the next couple verses. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the waters and surrounded them with water. It says that they deliberately forget that God made the heavens and the earth. What they say and what they know are two different things. They say they, that, that, uh, that things remain the same. They say, today we hear people say that they don't believe that there's a God or, or that creation is, was, was a design from something uh, bigger than just a random explosion. Um, but they deliberately forget that God made the heavens and the earth. Somewhere inside, somewhere, whether they know it right now or whether it's something they knew and they've chosen to forget, they know that there's a God behind all of creation. They know that there is absolute truth. They know that there is a right and a wrong and a holy and an unholy, but they choose to forget it. They choose not to believe it or accept it. Otherwise, they would have to deny their own desires. So they justify their beliefs fooling themselves because they don't desire to believe. Psalms 19, verse 1, says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, uh, he talks about uh, backstabbers and haters of God, and essentially mockers. Uh, he says that they think up foolish ideas until they believe them themselves. So the same sort of thought that we have going on here. And he says in verse 18, he says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, 
wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because it has been made obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky, though everything through everything God has made, they can see clearly his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So one of the ways that Christianity is often mocked that Peter is addressing here is that they, they attack, and it's funny, it's the same things today as it was back then, but they attack creation and they attack the flood. Many of the so-called experts in the fields of uh, physics and geology will matter-of-factly tell you that a global flood never happened. Or if it did happen, it didn't happen anywhere near the time that Noah would have existed. They will say that it is proven, that it's agreed upon by the entire scientific community at large, and it is ridiculous to think otherwise. Even some Christians have been convinced to adapt their views of what the Bible says with the thought that some might reject the gospel message because they find the accounts of creation and of the flood to be inaccurate or unbelievable. They fear that if they teach it the way that it is written, it will keep people from faith because they, they will feel like the whole Bible can't be true because they don't believe that part. And in their minds, it seems like the right thing to do. They want to reach people with the gospel, and they don't want this to be a hindrance to them. As a side note, there are a lot of PhDs in physics and, and uh, geology that actually have views contrary to what we hear in school textbooks or, or, or in TV shows. Uh, so there's a, there, there's a willingness to, to deny those things to, ma- <laughs> to match their own desired outcomes, just like we see them talking about and hear about uh, choosing to deny, choosing to believe their own foolish desires. Um, also, those things, like I said, we don't hear much about them, and we read earlier that there's wicked people who suppress the truth, their desires to suppress the truth. And so um, we're not going to go in deep in, into the, the accounts of creation and the flood, but the thing to me that it's, it's almost more scary than not knowing what the Bible says is knowing it, but approaching it in a way where you've kind of mixed your own understanding in with the Bible, in with this foundation of faith. So scripture is either true or it's not true. And when you mix in your, your own interpretations, um, your own way of understanding it, that somehow it has to match your understanding, then you weaken this foundation so that it can crack, it can break. And so um, we talked about this a little bit last week, but when we hear, um, it says that, when we hear these, um, these contradictions, we can't go to the Bible with a desire to have a specific outcome. We can't go into it um, wanting it to say what we want it to say or wanting to make it match what is popular in the world. We can't even go into it hoping that it says what we find most understandable to our simple minds. We have to be open to the revelation of the Holy Spirit, we need to approach it prayerfully, and we need to even be 
willing to accept that maybe in the end we won't understand it. Like maybe, maybe God will give us revelation in a year or in two years or in five years or in 10 years. But it's possible that some of the things in the Bible, and I guarantee you, some of the things in the Bible we're not going to understand entirely until we get to heaven and he tells us. Um, but we have to have, if we don't have the word of God as our faith, as our foundation, then we're just fooling ourselves. We're just making up our own religion. We're just making up our own God, essentially. And you can, you can take Christianity and you can turn it into a false religion. You can turn it into an idol by making it something that you want it to be rather than what it says that it is. So with these scoffers that Peter's describing, it's not that they've accidentally went off course, uh, but they don't want to believe what is true. They deliberately forget that creation cries out, there is a God. Ronald Reagan once said, kind of entertainingly, he said, uh, sometimes I'm faced with an atheist and I'm tempted to invite them over to have the greatest gourmet dinner that could ever be served. And when it is finished and we've, we've eaten this magnificent dinner, I want to ask them if they believe that there was a cook. When we stop to consider all of creation and all of its diversity, all of the intricacies, can you even say the word, of of the, there's there's an estimated 8.7 million species of life on this planet. All of this life and each one of those lives has all these details that make it function and survive and and reproduce and and even interact with each other and be dependent on one another. Um, It is just incredible. So for that to happen on its own, we'd have, and uh, it's just, it's crazy to me. We'd have to deliberately deny that there's a creator. I was talking to uh, Kevin and Steve this last week, and uh, we were talking about the number of stars in the sky and how um, the number of stars is likely close to the same number as the number of grains of sand on earth. Like, Steve was talking about the Mississippi River. There's a lot of sand in the Mississippi River. For there to be that many stars is just incredible. And uh, Kevin said that he had heard a study one time that the chance of life happening, even just for a short time, the chance of life happening, all the variables that would have to come together, it's like finding one red grain of sand out of all of the sand in the universe. It it just, it wouldn't happen on its own. And that's not even taking into account consideration um, how it supposedly all evolved into this vast diversity and has continued to exist, you know, for years and years and years, thousands of years. It is simply mind-boggling. And, and I've heard it said before, and, and I completely agree with this, that um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I, I just, for that to happen on its own is just, it's beyond my ability to believe and so I think that the only way that you could believe that is you have to deliberately forget. You have to choose that you don't want to believe that there is a God. Um, we're going to move on to Second Peter, uh, verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. 
No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Um, Earlier in verse four, we read uh, that they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? So Peter here seems to be responding to this form of mocking that, you know, if Jesus was really real, he would be here by now. Um, He's addressing this assumption um, that it seems to them that if Jesus was going to come, it would have happened. And it's kind of, it's strange to me because we're reading this 2,000 years later, but this argument happened 30 or 40 years after Jesus ascended. And to me, that seems very recent to be already questioning. But, you know, that's because we've been waiting for 2,000 years. And so with that thought in mind, though, it's really cool, to me at least, that, that, uh, that he said a 1,000 years. He didn't say um, a decade. He didn't say a day is like 10 years. Like that might have been comforting to his original hearers, thinking, okay, well, then it's like four days have gone by to God, you know. Um, but to us, you know, to hear a thousand years, you know, it's like it, it puts things in perspective a little bit, even though, um, you know, I don't, I don't believe that this is some sort of a, a tool to some sort of mathematical way of figuring out when Christ is, is going to return. Um, when I try and use those numbers and try and push them in, um, I try and figure out that, you know, one variable, so X would equal one day to God, and then uh, Y would be a thousand years, but then we also have to take in consideration that X not only means one day, but it also means a thousand years, and Y doesn't just mean a thousand years, it also means a day, and so then when you plug all that stuff in, you calculate it, and you're like, well, it it looks like I have no idea. (laughs) And so the idea here is not that there's some sort of calculation that we can do, that we can figure out when he's coming. But what it's really alluding to is the same thing that's portrayed throughout the Old Testament scriptures is that God is timeless. He's, he's not constrained by time. Um, he's called in the Old Testament the eternal God, God forever and ever, the ever uh, the everlasting creator of the ends of the earth. And I, and I believe he means from creation to destruction. So he's there from before to after. And the number of his years are unsearchable. And then as almost a copy of what Peter is saying here, if we look at Psalms 90 verse 4, it says, For you, a thousand years are as a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. So the only explanation for this riddle is that God's plans are not contingent on whether or not we feel like it was a long time. Um, that's not a reason to, to deny whether it's going to happen or not. God is not bound by time. It's like having a child in the back seat, and five minutes after you leave the driveway, they're like, this is taking forever. <laughs> then they ask you every five minutes after that if they're there yet. And, uh, and it just their opinion or their feeling of how long it's taking has no bearing on whether or not um, you're going to get there or not, whether or not you know where you're going or whether or not, you know, you will ever arrive. Uh, It's not based on their perception of how long it's taking. So 2,000 years have gone by into humans. That may seem like forever. But as we read in Isaiah, God does not 
become weary. He doesn't become tired. God isn't getting bored waiting. Um, And what some may view as him being slow to return, it says, is really just God being patient with us, allowing more time for more people to be saved. In James 5, 7, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for their valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Farmers, do you have a specific day of the year that you harvest your crops? Is it marked on your calendar? No? Is there there a number of days from the day you plant to the day you harvest? If an exact number, there's maybe a range. We kind of know how long it takes. But the real determination on when you harvest is by looking at the field and determining whether or not it's ready or not. God is waiting for the harvest. He's waiting for the harvest so that it can be even more plentiful. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. The Lord is not slow. The Lord is not bound by time. He will return regardless of the amount of time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Uh, We talked quite a bit about the new heavens and the new earth on New Year's Day, so I'm not going to go too deep into that. Um, other than to say that this is one of those other things that I, I mentioned there's some themes that kind of run through Peter's writings and um, this reminder that the treasures of earth are passing away and the promises that there's a new heaven and new earth, that there's a future hope um, given to us. These are repeated over and over through these two letters. It was a topic of First Peter, it was the main topic of First Peter chapter 1 and um, it talked about our, our eternal reward And if you look through all of the different chapters of Peter, I know he didn't write them in chapters, but seven out of the eight chapters that he wrote um, had us looking forward to a hope for a future, something that was eternal, something that was a reward, something that we could hold on to, um, to know that even when we're facing any sort of trials of today, any sort of mocking or scoffing, we know that there is a hope in him for the future that can bring us joy as we travel through them. Second Peter uh, 3.15 says, <clears throat> And remember, our Lord's patience gives a people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letter, his letters to mean something quite different. 
just as they do with other parts of Scripture. You can see again here how he's connecting Paul's letters with Scripture, validating God's word spoken through the apostles. And this will result in their destruction. Peter is talking about Paul's writings, and he says that some of them are hard to understand. And he talks about how the ignorant and the unstable have twisted it. We're not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to just grab a a piece of the puzzle and run with it. We have to take God's word as as a whole. We have to look at all the things that we've been taught and find out how do they apply together? How, How does it match what we know about God's character and his, his values and his plans and his purposes. Um, some things are a little bit hard to, to understand and we have to carefully study them out. And part of the reason that it may be hard for us to understand is because we've been living in this culture for a long time and our minds have been a little bit sculpted by it. Um, we read in Romans that we're not supposed to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It says we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That means that there was some conforming that happened. Our minds aren't in the right place always to read and properly decipher the Word of God. And so we need to have our minds renewed. And that comes from spending time with God, that spends t- spending time in the scriptures, allowing the Spirit to speak to us what it says, not allowing us to speak to the Bible what we want it to say. So carefully study and hold it in your hearts and let it be a guide and a light. We have the final words of Peter that are recorded in the Bible um, here in verse 17 through 18 says, you already know these things, dear friends. He likes to tell us things we already know, right? We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. We need to be reminded. It says, you already know these things, dear friends. So be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. It appears to me in this section, there's no middle option. He doesn't give us a spot where we're standing still. It says to be on guard so that you're not carried away. And then it says you must grow. So I think you can infer from this that if you are not growing, you're likely getting carried away. It's one or the other. Um, I, I always think of it like... You're standing in a river that has a strong current. You're you know, about waist deep, and it's pushing against you. And if you just stand there, little by little, the, the sand kind of gets washed from under your feet, and you kind of move backwards a little bit. But you can move forward, but you have to do it on purpose. You have to be di- diligent about it. And, and, you, and the other thing is you don't have to stand in the deepest part of the river. <laughs> You know, we, we, we live in the world, but that doesn't mean that you need to submerse yourself in it. I mean, the worst thing you could do is just pick up your feet and you'll just be, be carried on. Culture is a, is a current. It's, it's got pressure against you. Um, and we must not be carried away. We have to be on guard. We have to plant our feet. We have to look for those rocks in the riverbed so that we can, we can walk forward. 
If we are not standing tall and actively moving upstream, we're going to be moving backwards. We need to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a light unto our path. Lord, I just pray that you would cause us to fall more and more deeply in love with it, that we would uh, recognize the safety and protection that's in it, that we would recognize the joy that comes from walking within your commands, walking within what is right and righteous in your eyes. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us with your instruction. Lord, we trust that in the truth of your words, Lord, that we'll be held secure, Lord God, and we trust in them. We ask that you plant them deeply in our hearts. Lord, we just pray that, uh, that as a whole, this whole message of Peter, all of the, the encouragements he had about godly living, all the encouragements that he gave us about our eternal hope in the future, all the warnings he gave us about false teaching and about mockers and scoffers, Lord, that you would um, plant those deeply in our hearts, Lord God, that we can walk in strength and walk with a, a quick stride in our growth and development towards you, Lord, that we would be used even more uh, in your kingdom to accomplish your will, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was just thinking about how uh, um, I, I've mentioned this this good news sandwich idea. We've, we've re- referenced back to that a few times. But um, just uh, even the scoffers, you know, they, they're fooling themselves, you know, and it may be easy for us to want to uh to either back down when we're intimidated you know when we're when we're confronted with this mocking um we can be silent and not want to say anything or we can fight back and feel like we need to you know tell them what's true and and uh and one of the the things that we talked about when we talked about this uh good news sandwiches that we're we need to have it uh, actually i think it was the bottom one we talked about carrying it in in uh with gentleness, you know, that we're, we're, we're offering this uh, with a gentleness. And so we don't need to be afraid. We can be bold. You know, we can know that we know that we know the truth. Like this guy being, you know, interrogated, like he would have, if he knew that he didn't do it, he would have said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I don't care what you said. No, I didn't. You know, but, um, but, but we can share it also not in a way where we're attacking, but in a way where we're showing that we love them. They are, they're, they're part of the harvest that, that God wants to reap. He wants them to be part of that harvest. He wants them to come to know him. And so um, as we face these mockers, you know, know what you, you know that you know that you know what is true and don't be afraid to stand on what is true and share it, but share it with gentleness. Amen. All right. Um, I'm going to close with... Uh, just repeating some of the verses that we read is just an encouragement. So we're going to look at uh, uh, 11 through 15. It says, Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away. But we are looking forward to 
to a new heaven and a new earth. We have a hope. He has promised this will be a world that is filled with God's righteousness. So dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives, pure and blameless, blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. So go in the power of the Holy Spirit with the word of God as your light guiding your way, bringing glory to God in all that you do. Amen. Amen.